Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, June the 3rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It is about nine days now since George Floyd died in Minneapolis at the hands of a white policeman. And since then, cities across the United States have seen mass protests and violent clashes sometimes with police forces. Uh, A little later, we'll be going to Washington, D.C. to hear the latest on all of that. But first, there have been demonstrations around the world about this issue, and not least in Dublin, actually, where thousands of people participated in in a Black Lives Matter march from the city centre to the US Embassy on Monday. To discuss all this, I'm joined by Irish Times reporter Circa Pollock. Hi, Circa. Hi, Hugh. How are you doing? I'm very good. Also by Fintan O'Toole. Hello, Fintan. Hi, Hugh. And also by uh, Sally Garnet, also known as Lois. She's a black musician from Dublin. Hi, Sally. Hi. Uh, Circa, I'm going to go to you first because you reported on the march on Monday. Um, I get the impression that the organisers were very surprised by how many people turned out. It was a huge event. Yeah, it was a huge turnout. And um, the most um, striking thing about it was the age demographic. It was young people, I would say, putting the majority between 16 and 25, a lot of teenagers involved. Um, it spread like wildfire, the new, the the news of this thing and the plans for it. Um, when I heard about it, it was through a poster and it appears that most people who were at the event also learned about it through this poster that went across WhatsApp, Twitter, uh, TikTok, all forms of social media. And um, people gathered at the GPO and walked from the GPO all the way down to the American Embassy in Balls Bridge. And it was, as we remember, Monday was very warm in Dublin. I think it was about 24, 25 degrees. So people in shorts, T-shirts, sun beaming down and a pretty um, electric atmosphere. Now, I mean, it should be noted that there have been a lot of complaints in the last few days about the number of people who gathered on the streets, given the restrictions that are currently in place. As I saw it, um, people were making an effort to stay away from each other as they were walking. I think when people reached the American embassy, uh, people, they were kind of on top of each other a bit. Um, But I think the young people involved got caught up, as anyone would, with the um, atmosphere that was there. It was quite striking and it was entirely peaceful. It was um, shouts and chants, but the entire thing was completely peaceful. Yeah, I think it's important to say, I, actually a statement landed in my inbox um, this morning on behalf of the musician Jay Yellowell, who is one of the organisers of the of the march. Um, and I kind of implicit in that was a sense of surprise at the scale it had been and addressing, I think, to some extent, this question of whether it was appropriate um, to have that number of people in a gathering. In fact, you know, clearly by the regulations which we're all currently living under, uh, it isn't. And saying that that he, for example, as a result of that, was going to self-isolate for the next um, for the next two weeks and was advising um, other people to do the same. Sally, you didn't attend the march because, among other things, you, you work in the health front line. Indeed, yes. Um, it would be irresponsible of me to place myself in a crowd, a large crowd of people. Um, so, but of course, I was aware that it was happening. And, you know, it is, it's a compl- complicated thing to gather in large numbers under our 
or the restrictions, as you mentioned to you. Um, but also, as Sirka did say, it, it's impossible not to get caught up in the kind of incendiary feeling that's in, in the world right now um, and the, that desire for justice and doing anything that we can to support the movement in America. Can you help me to understand um, something? And I've seen some people commenting about this on social media. Over the last three or four years, hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in the most abominable circumstances in various situations around the world. One example would be Syria, for example, you know, dreadful human rights abuses. Um, This one appalling incident in Minneapolis, captured on video, flashed around the United States, created this snowball of, of reaction. Why does that find a purchase so far away in Dublin that other events don't? Hmm. It's a really good question. It's one that I've been considering myself. I'm sure a lot of people have. Um, first start, so the Black Lives Matter movement has been in public consciousness for a while. Um, black human, black slash human rights issues that are ongoing in America have been in public in consciousness for several centuries. Um, Yes, people get very upset and angsty about human rights abuses that happen the world over, post about it, tweet about it for maybe a week or so, and then it goes away and nothing more is done. We don't think about it. We move on. Um, With this issue, I honestly don't have an answer to that. I think that there is an exhaustion um, about for for that activists feel on the Black Lives Matter issue. Um, I think there's maybe a sense as well that... um, Sometimes things just reach a tipping point where you can't keep seeing the same. It was that Einstein quote: "If you keep, you can't keep doing the same thing and expecting a different, uh, expecting a different response." There, there is a kind of a, a level of in- insanity at consistently having to see people being brutally murdered in in broad daylight and not respond and not do anything. Because at which, at what point does it become incumbent on the population watching it to to be at fault? And there's maybe a sense of of people finally stepping up and taking responsibility and certainly um, white Americans going, it's actu- it, is fu- it is really and truly on us to actually protect our so-called co- fellow countrymen. Um, the, why Ireland is responding, um, for black people everywhere, this is extremely triggering. But you have to remember, black people everywhere face ra- in the West face ra- and, in, and in Africa too, face racism all the time. So this is not new for us. We're all up to speed on the movement. We're all up to speed on how racism affects our, our each other in our lives. Um, but this particular incident and the protests that ensue because of the, the violent nature of George, George Floyd's death and then how the protests have taken interesting turns um, has been more triggering and has led to black people in Ireland speaking up in a way that we normally don't. So I think it's what's happening is that because black Irish people are speaking, our fellow Irish men are going, oh my God, wait, we are not separate from a racist system that uh, that allows things like that to happen, albeit America is so extreme in so many ways. maybe this is triggering us to look at ourselves because if our black friends are saying guys we're not innocent we're now turning inward because we can't go over there and you know help people per se but we can certainly do something on our own territory because black lives matter of course you know arose as a movement in response to a very specific situation in the united states where young black men in particular but not just young black men but black people in particular were dying at the hands of white police officers for for the most part. And that's what it arose from. That is not a situation that we see in Ireland, but that doesn't mean 
that a lot of what we're seeing in the United States doesn't have resonance for black Irish people as well. Even that phrase, I can't breathe, has been brought you know, forward as a sort of metaphor for the experience of black people in, in Irish society and in, and, and in other societies. Yeah, um, like the, the Black Lives Matter movement is really um, a phenomenon of social media. There, I suppose in some ways there's always been a Black Lives Matter movement in some form in America um, because activists have been you know, doing work to get better rights for black people for as long as there have been black people in America, whether it was like slave um, insurgents and riots or protests. And then, you know, pro after emancipation, there have been so many movements and there have been so many, you know, riots in response to things. So it's not a new movement per se, but the, the hashtag is new. The hashtag is mm. recent. That's because now we have phones and now we can record it happening. It's always been there. Now we get to record it. And that's why it becomes harder and harder to ignore and for people to live indifferently when it's coming out of your phone into your sitting room. So in Ireland, I think the the sort of mirrored version of that, albeit while it's not necessarily as violent, is in some ways has been going on for generations. Um, I did bring this up in my video that, you know, my mum was born in an institution um, like many Irish people, not just mixed race ones, many white people. So we have our own institutionalised major problems that we definitely have swept under the carpet in past generations. Um, so there have been black people here for a long time, uh, coming in and out, not in big numbers, but they, we've always had interactions. Irish people have travelled all over the world. They've fallen in love with people. They've We've had their partners come home with them. We've had people come and train as doctors. There have been we've had interactions with black people for for generations. Um, major black activists have actually come to Ireland and tried to lobby here for um, kind of Irish black unions uh, to to support each other because we have faced such similar types of oppression. But that hasn't always been taken up by the Irish people. Um, and there, I think there are other reasons for that. But we haven't always allied ourselves with our black brothers and sisters as it were either in country or out of um so this the hashtag black lives matter movement and the subsequent outpouring of information that comes as a result of that and historical context is placing ireland in a really interesting position because we've never been a colonizer we've been colonized we have a lot of things in common with the, those movements we know what it's like to be brutalized penalized um, face institutional um prejudice in your own on your own territory in your own land um we know what it's like to be left at the bottom of the barrel in socioeconomic ways in a wider setting we have so much in common with this um and but the pro our problem is that we have over the generations We've graduated. I say we as this is my Irish side speaking now. We as if I'm a white person, we have graduated to whiteness. And this is how in, uh, endemic the concept of whiteness is that we have graduated to believing that we are we identify more with a, a, a random white American who might be a police officer who's going to murder a black person because the concept of whiteness was created that that was that's actually relatively new in in terms of history so now we have a problem where irish people could be the greatest allies on earth for uh, any black rights movement but have been 
d have been forced to accept an identity that is whiteness, which separates you from nation or history. It uh, Your whiteness al allies you more with English, literally English aristocrats than it does with black people who are face who face similar historical situations. Does that make sense? I think it does. Vincent, this is a subject that you've written a bit about over the years, about the the nature of, of Irish identity and whiteness and particularly the way it all worked in the uh, in the United States in relation to what I think lots of people have referred to as, as America's original sin, which is the, the establishment of, of, of slavery of, of African-Americans from the more than 400 years ago. Um, now, do you think we're maybe embarking on a, on a new chapter, whatever that might bring in that story now? You know, I, I'm fascinated by what what Sally's saying. You know, and it's it's and also by the the marches taking place because I think we might be at a moment actually where we're sort of being forced, as Sally said, in a way to to sort out you know our own relationship to racism. You know, and and it's a very complex, very um, involved, very contradictory history that we have. Uh, and it's it's one that we don't really talk about an awful lot. A very simple way of understanding this, right, is to say, who are Irish Americans? You know, was Ella Fitzgerald an Irish American? The name would suggest she was, you know. John Fitzgerald Kennedy is an Irish American. Ella Fitzgerald is not, right? So there are obviously huge numbers of Irish Americans, genetically, in, in exactly the same sense as, 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 as most um, Irish Americans are, you know, who, who are who are African-American, right? So blackness trumps Irishness in that sense, right? Um, I, I remember 20 years ago when I was working in New York, a colleague of mine um, who was a, a great um, African-American critic, Stanley Crouch, was asked to give the, uh, a talk to the Irish-American Historical Society, you know, and, and he was asked to give a talk as an African-American and he introduced himself as an Irish-American, uh, you know, to make the point that he had the same kind of genetic um, history as most of the people present had. And they were very disturbed by it, you know. It was great for him to be, to be, to be African-American. It wasn't so good for him to say, I'm Irish-American. So, you know, it, it, I'm just, it's just an illustration, really, of how complex and contradictory and difficult our relationship to all of this has been. And we basically got two histories here, right? We, we have a history, as Sally says, of 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 Irish Americans deciding and 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 you know being pushed in a direction of racism to say we're better than the blacks because you know Irish people were on the same sort of level uh, and how do you move up the chain you know you you move up through racism uh, so for example words like miscegenation very very powerful word in nineteenth century America is is invented by an Irish journalist you know. There's a lot of that stuff, and you know, I won't, I won't go on about. It. But so the, you've got this very long history, which is still very present in in Trump, right? So so it's no accident that Trump has ended up with a very strongly Irish American, Irish Catholic milieu around him, who op operate a kind of very differential sense of of privilege, right? which is and there's a kind of underlying story here, which is. We're Irish Americans. We were slaves once, which is a complete, absolute lie and appalling, you know, misunderstanding of what chattel slavery is, what it's like to be actually owned. Uh, but we, we were slaves once. We came over here. We had nothing. And look at us now. We've succeeded. We're fantastic. The explicit or implicit message is African Americans, their, their poverty is their own fault, you know. 
if they were as good as us, they would be, you know, up up where we are. Uh, so a deeply racist narrative that's 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 around Irish America. On the other hand, uh, and Sally was referring to this quite rightly, you know, there, there's another tradition, right? There's the tradition of of, of Daniel O'Connell, you know, who created Irish Catholic consciousness, really national consciousness in the nineteenth century who had a huge opportunity to raise money in the United States and to, to be a hero in the United States, refusing to set foot in the United States so long as slavery continued continue to exist. You have O'Connell bringing the great Frederick Douglass for Douglass's first venture outside of the United States as a, as a freed slave. I mean, bringing him, you know, landing in Cove and, and embracing him as the black Daniel O'Connell, which in O'Connell's mind was the greatest compliment you could pay to anybody, you know. And you have a very strong anti-racist tradition, uh, which, is, which is in America, but, but, but also, you know, in, in Ireland, in the anti-colonial movements. Um, and so we have these two traditions and we've been able to go along really um, not... Um, not having to make sense of them in a way. Um, having our cake and eating it, really, being sort of anti-colonial when it suits us, and being on the side of the big guys when it suits us as well. Exactly. So we're 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 great. You know, we're 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 not guilty um, of of racism, uh, and uh, at the same time, of course, that sort of the paradoxically this lack of guilt allows people to be very racist, right? Because you don't have to examine your own interactions with people of colour. You don't have to think about, about um, particularly recent migrants. Um, and, and so, you know, m- maybe this is a moment which is not just an American moment, although it primarily is, but also a moment where, you know, w- we might examine our own consciousness and think a little bit about Irishness and whiteness and all of those kind of things that Sally was, was so, so, so eloquently raising. Sirka, could I ask you about uh, actually two things in relation to that to you? One is that the the, the march itself, um, a lot of the photographs foregrounded the the black participants in the march who were leading the march, uh, you know, right, rightly so. Uh, but Sirka, you've also been um, uh, on social media reporting some of this stuff and you get a lot of flack and harassment and really uh, abominable abuse. So there's kind of, there's two sides of how this story is developing politically in Ireland, isn't there? There is. Uh, there seems to be a you know a, a grassroots movement supporting uh, what was happening on Monday and protesting against what's happening in the states, but there's also a racist backlash too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there is um, a very vocal racist backlash online. People who are more than happy to voice their opinions and then hide behind their little Twitter egg. But before I get into that on the protest, um, what was so heartening about the participation was the diversity within the protest as well. Black, white, a whole, I mean, brown, it was all all races joining together and it's so reflective of what Ireland is today. I mean, I said it was young people. That is what young people in Ireland is today. Um, and I was, I'm not great at numbers when it comes to getting estimates of marches. And I was standing there trying to figure out, and I actually stood on Baggett Street for about 20 minutes, watching the march go by, trying to guesstimate what was going on. And I I initially admittedly thought it was around 10,000 people. Um, Then I spoke to some photographers and I brought my estimate down to more than 5,000. I still personally think it was around the 8,000 mark. Uh, The Gardaí wouldn't give me a number on it because they're no longer giving numbers on protests. But regardless, it was a massive turnout of solidarity. But meanwhile, as you mentioned, um, online, um, I've grown quite accustomed accustomed in the last few years to getting online abuse and I'm a white middle class woman. So, I mean, I um, 
I'm not even at the I'm not even at the races when it comes to the kind of stuff black people would be getting. But I do get a lot of hate around immigration because I focus primarily on immigration in my work. I'm accused, one of the more common um, accusations is I'm accused of leading the uh, white genocide in Ireland and killing off white people. Um, I also, um, someone dug up a few years ago and discovered I had a Jewish background. So that's off, often used um, as an attack on me. I'm described as a Jew. Um, all of these things, I don't, I don't let them get to me. I'm, most of the time I don't read them. But earlier this week, I put out a tweet about uh, the lack of diversity in the Irish media. And the response to that was quite shocking, actually. The level of vitriol around um, claiming that there should be brown and black faces in the Irish media saying that's not what Ireland is. Ireland is a white country. The Irish media should be white. I was I was taken aback by it. And people, I mean, Twitter, um, we all know about the the type of language that can appear on Twitter. I mean, Donald Trump is the perfect example in recent weeks or I mean years, but also with what happened in the last couple of weeks with Twitter flagging his tweets. But people do feel that they have um, a license to say whatever it is that they want. And actually, some of them don't even hide behind the Twitter egg anymore. Some of them are openly putting their photos out there and will openly engage. And I've noticed, actually, I recently opened in the past year my direct messages on my Twitter so that people could contact me with stories. And in the last few days, I've had a lot of direct emails attacking me um, with people who want to engage back and forth. This isn't just them sending one message. They want to go back and forth on it. So... There is a lot of hatred in this country. Now, having said that, I do think these people are in the minority. I genuinely believe it. I think there's two issues. There is a kind of a latent um, silent racism that exists along, among a, long, a large proportion of the, of the population who don't believe themselves to be racist, who believe themselves to be very open and very uh, welcoming to people of colour who come here. Um, that in itself is an issue. The Ireland is not racist thing. We are not racist. We are welcoming. That's a huge issue in itself. And as something, someone pointed out on Twitter the other day, what about the couple who did the little ad and had to leave the country because of the abuse they got online from huge numbers of people? But beside that, there is a small cohort of people um, who are directly connected to far-right groups and who actively make it their job to go out and attack People like myself or musicians like um, Loa who who do speak out on these issues and they will actively attack, attack, attack. And um, this has been, become almost culturally accepted and a cultural norm that I think 10 years ago people would have been entirely taken aback by. So I want to get your perspective on that. Um, when um, when Circa uh, tweeted earlier about the lack of diversity in the Irish media, she was absolutely right about that. And I include the, the Irish Times in that as well. This country is changing and it's changing slowly. Uh, one of the things that strikes me about this particular event and moment is it reminds us again that you know African-Americans who've been through these terrible experiences over centuries have also managed to assert their own power and their own voice um, through cultural channels, through art and literature and and particularly through music, you know, and you're, you're a musician yourself. And when I look around in Ireland now where I see Black Irish or hear Black Irish voices, uh, it's increasingly um, uh, evident and loud and impressive in the in the world of, of music. But when you listen to what Circus is describing there as a white middle class Irish journalist, um, what's your experience of the public reaction to you with a, a, as a public persona in Irish life in the 21st century? Um, first, I guess, first of all, I would say that this conversation that we're having is one of, is probably this, the first conversation I've ever had in this country in a public space explicitly about race. 
I know exactly what Cirque is talking about because I've experienced that rhetoric in person from people, like in, in the flesh. So most black Irish people won't even approach the concept of race in a public space without extreme delicacy because we know that brimstone and fire that you're talking about. We know we know it in, systematically from when we're young. We, we, we don't, it never comes as a surprise. Um, we know how endemic it is and how much the sliding scale can go from casual um, indifference to that kind of abuse. And in some cases, even a friend of mine has received like very threatening messages about her personal safety, who's a black artist who's visible. So um, unfortunately, that doesn't surprise me. Um, and as a result, in some ways, it's sad to say that I haven't really approached this conversation before because I'm afraid um, I don't feel capable of handling that a lot of the time. It's very traumatic, as I'm sure, Sirica, you, you know this at this point. It, Yeah, you, you know, unfortunately, you get used to it. Um, but because my my role that is a musician, I like to keep the conversation around music. And I feel like you can, what, as you just said to you, what African-Americans who work in the arts have taught us is that you can actually say a lot by by saying not as much as you you might wa- want to say <laughs> you know you can you can make very clear points in in poems in songs which um can be taken up at people's leisure when you start coming out with very clear specific requests directives demands as you say even circa a white middle class person suddenly you are now you're on the black side and you're getting all of that vitriol and hate that's been pent up for centuries towards black people ah you're with them Okay, here's the brimstone of fire. Now we know that. I I see that down the pub all the time. That's not news to me. I know that that guy. I know that girl. You know, um, I've had friends um who we even went to college with who've had to literally jump in in situations at festivals, for example, where there's alcohol taken and people don't can't hold themselves in as much as usual. So I think a lot of um black people who have this um cultural sensitivity are, are born with that sensitivity and desire to affect change or are expressive or expressiveness will gravitate towards the arts sooner than they will activism because activism makes you very vulnerable in a place where you're already very vulnerable so you're vulnerable from the get-go so to then you have to have a real fire under you and a real determination now that uh, that's actually t- I, I've come to feel that that's a little bit of an excuse on our part as well and I do think that especially people like me who are black and also privileged um, have more of an onus on us to not just kind of cower and to speak up now that not to say that I'm going to make a habit out of it because fundamentally I am still a musician and I probably won't be doing too many more conversations like this I just really wanted to speak to you guys but um, I think that we need to definitely support black activists or, and people who are, you know, taking that risk. And um, because as Sarah has described, it, it is that when you put yourself out there, you really see the face of of the public and that it's a many it's a many headed demon slash God, whatever way you want to look at it. <laughs> mm, yeah. So and do you have a, and, and do you have a sense finally if you wouldn't mind that we're going in the in the right direction that when Barack Obama said the arc of history bends towards progress ultimately that despite setbacks and two steps forward one steps back that we're going in the right direction yeah Hugh I, I could not agree more with that statement I am 
over while obviously there's so much triggering happening um all the time there's a lot of painful views being come about i'm also overwhelmed by um the the sheer numbers of people who are willing to even engage with the fact that um if you if you align yourself as as white which is a concept that you are unintentionally aligning yourself with racism and you didn't even know it's like you've you've had a, pr- a software program downloaded into your brain that you never gave permissions for and i think the willingness of of irish people who actually at a, at our center there is a humility and a and a compassion that you you get from pain that you get from centuries of knowing pain that is there to be woken up and people we have rested on our laurels we have an institutionalized major problem in direct provision we have real examples in every black person's life can tell you of plenty of examples even people friends loved ones partners who um, speak from that software program but there is a willingness to unpack as um, you said Fintan that we're at this crossroads now where we're like hang on you know we've been eating from eat, having our cake and eating it which side of this fence are we on are we for progress or are we just happy to leave things the way they are which means turning a blind eye to literal slaughter and i just i don't i think in, as a nation we have it in us to do better because we we want to do better and we want we know what that's like and we want a different version of a reality it's going to be challenging and it's going to be really uncomfortable because that first period of accepting that you've been part of a problem is always so painful you know um even i know that i have also in, taken in those racist ideas used them against myself uh, in forms of self harm uh, either mental emotional uh, otherwise um i've even used them to up, to traumatize other black people because i was acting from the mouthpiece of of a concepts that were invented centuries ago to allow exploitation. So I know exactly what this process is because I've had to do it. Um in because I didn't want to keep going on hating myself. Um and now that we're all do waking up as a nation and we we're doing a lot of waking up in the past few generations and it's great and more of it. Sally, Serka, listen, thanks very much for joining us. Stick with us. Finton is going to stick with us and in a moment we'll be joined from Washington by Suzanne Lynch. You're listening to the Irish Times. Suzanne, you're back in Washington. You were in Atlanta for a couple of days, so you've seen these events unfold in in two different major American cities. Things calmed down slightly last night, did they? I think they did. Um, I was back here uh, on on Tuesday night for the protest. I'd been there for the first night on Friday also. And look, it, it, it's difficult to characterise things when you're one reporter in the midst of thousands of people. And there were uh, there were demonstrations taking place across Washington, not just outside the White House, but also beneath the Lincoln Memorial and a Capitol Hill. But absolutely, the the atmosphere and the feeling was one of peaceful demonstration. It was one of um, of passion and of emotion, and there was a real sense that people felt very strongly about this. And um, there's a lot of chanting that was happening uh, sporadically throughout these hours that people stood there. Um, but I saw no violence. Uh, there was tension, but no no violence as such. Um, and I think there was a, a shift in the attitude attitude of the law and order of of the of the authorities in the 24 hours um, after. Monday night's events when the police moved to disperse protesters before the 7pm curfew happened um, and which facilitated the the photo op whereby Donald Trump left the White House, walked through the gates and went and stood in front of a church. 
Um, yesterday, uh, when I was down at that church, uh, there were at one point I was I was looking at these members of the clergy with their collars, man, a man and a woman chatting to these young African American men who had gathered there. People were sitting on the rails. It's like they had reclaimed this symbol. Uh, and uh, the the atmosphere, as I said, was charged but very peaceful. I was there um, past a curfew until, but it kept going really until after midnight. But much much fewer people. And then shortly before one a.m., the police there was there were a few skirmishes, very very small level compared to the previous night. And then it seemed to have dispersed. So I think this was one would say a victory of sorts for demonstrators who were able to to stand out there, protest peacefully the, the, the right that's enshrined in the First Amendment of the Constitution, which Americans always cite, um, without um, getting moved on from the police. So I think, uh, I think a lot of the protesters that I met last night would be very happy with how, how things progressed as the night went on. And then more broadly, you know, across the United States, is there similar things happening? And I wonder as well, as listening to you there, obviously a lot of this is down to what's happening with the demonstrators themselves but there's also what the police are doing and you know the you know the, the various police forces are not a monolith themselves either and they may be pursuing different strategies there was clearly a call from the from the right and from from Trump for a uh, an expression of dominance i think was the phrase that he used it's essentially a more violent crackdown but on the other hand i was looking at footage of police officers you know deliberately stepping forward and taking the knee uh, to kind of indicate some level of solidarity with 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 the demonstrators too so different kinds of approaches yeah and i think it's important again to highlight which the fact that runs through so much of american life which is the distinction between the, the federal government and states. And like so many parts of American life, individual states and the governors who run those states have a huge amount of power, as they do um, with law and order. So um, what happened in D.C., and that's one of the reasons why it was so interesting on Monday night when things kicked off, was that D.C. is not the District of Columbia. It's not actually a state. The mayor has the jurisdiction. And yet there are lots of federal buildings within D.C. So it's a kind of a mismatch of, of authority. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Donald Trump uh, and his cabinet, it looks like Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, ordered the square in front of the White House to be to be um, to be cleared. They have quite a lot of power around that uh, area of Washington. But look, it comes down to individual states how they run their law enforcement. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right. We saw different styles. We saw different levels and we saw individual cases. I was in Atlanta. That was definitely the scenes I saw there were definitely more tense. And um, there was a standoff between a line of uh, of, of police um, and a line of protesters who were screaming at them, throwing the odd water bottle. It, it didn't really kick off into any further violence from that. But there was um, at least pepper spray uh, sp- uh, sprayed, uh, maybe tear gas, I'm not sure. Um, but there you saw the police in full riot gear and also the National Guard, which was called up. Each state is a National Guard. They were patrolling uh, also. So there was a, a, a forcible um, display of of power and of law and authority there. What was one of the most moving moments for me was at one point in Atlanta, um, a young woman who was had her, you know, had huge signs and she was um, shouting over at the National Guard. And from what I could hear, she seemed to be saying, you know, you're black, so am I. Why are you standing on that side? So I felt, you know, for African-American members of the police force, I think this is particularly difficult. This has been characterised as a fight between a, a white only police force that has uh, cases of institutional racism built into its DNA. Whereas, in fact, a lot of these police officers I've seen and National Guard members are from all 
all uh, ethnic backgrounds, all races. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's just a poignant, it, it, it's, a, it's an emotional moment for America um, that's been played out in these cities around the country. And of course, Hugh, I'm talking about two of the major cities with big African-American populations, Washington, D.C. and Atlanta. There were protests in smaller cities. I was around Georgia. There were four protests in Augusta, Georgia over the last four years. Um, there was protest in Savannah. They were all peaceful. Um, so we've seen the smaller towns and cities across America also um, wake up and, and hold some of the biggest mo- movements of mass protest in generations, uh, but all mostly uh, peaceful. Fintan, I have to ask you about Trump. Um, he, he's a man who wears his id on the outside uh, or in his, in his tweets that, that a lot of people have compared what's been happening to what was happening in the 1960s when the cities of the United States went up in flames and Martin Luther King was assassinated and there was this kind of climax of, of tension and violence in, in 1968 and Richard Nixon um, very cannily took political advantage of that and won the election and on the on the back of an appeal to what he called the silent majority, which many people read as being the white majority. Trump, of course, tweeted in all caps, silent majority, exclamation mark. So it's not very subtle that he's looking to try and do his own garbled version of that. But do you think that could succeed? It could, you know, uh, that's absolutely the gamble that he's taking, you know, which is following his gut instinct, um, which, you know, is is hugely problematic, but but um, has got him so far. Um, and that instinct is that, um, indeed, if, if he can succeed in the narrative of characterizing the protesters as um, Antifa, you know, which he's become obsessed with, anarchists, um, looters, thugs... Uh, and I am the law and order president, you know, I stand for the silent majority. Um, interestingly, also, even within black communities, I mean, we'll be trying a kind of a narrative, which is the Democrats are weak, you know, black businesses being completely destroyed, uh, you know, the, 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 so there's, there's a kind of a narrative there which, which in theory could transcend the racial divide. Okay, no, very much in theory, I say. But that's, that's the way he's trying to frame it. Um, I think his 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 difficulty um is that he's not Nixon, right? So 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 uh, people I mean Nixon Nixon Trump is Nix, Trump is late Nixon, right? Trump is the mad deranged um unmoored Nixon of the Watergate years, you know, who has lost any sense of 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 a connection between what's going on in the White House and the reality of what's going on outside. Um, 1968 Nixon is a very smart politician, right? Who who is saying uh, the silent majority wants unity, the silent majority wants peace, the silent majority wants somebody who can bring America together. So yes, he's doing a sort of you know there are these thugs out there, there are these bad people, but he's also doing you know I, I am the one who can bring everybody together. Now, Historically, that might seem laughable, but it's very powerful in 1968, right? Um, and that's the big difference, right, is, is that Trump, unlike Nixon, uh, unlike almost any other kind of conventional right-wing politician in these circumstances, is completely unable and unwilling to even attempt a rhetoric of unification and healing, right? He just doesn't do that. And I think that's his problem, right, which is... Uh, Trump's mindset is is crude and binary, 
right? and and he set it out for the governors in that sort of leaked um, uh, call that he did, the, you know, kind of communal phone call with 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 the governors in New Mexico, where he 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 used this thing about about domination. But what he basically said was, "You're either dominant or you're a jerk, right? You're acting like jerks. You got to go out and show dominance." And now there's only there's only two states you can be in, right? Um, and I think Trump's problem is that um, most people understand that the domination, uh, to be against domination, if domination takes the form of murdering black people on the streets slowly on camera, maybe it's not a kind of domination that for the sort of middle ground America they actually want to see. And Trump's rhetoric of, you know, um, trying to basically framed this as a war. I mean, a lot of us have been speculating for the last couple of years about when is Trump going to do a war? Well, this is now, right? This is what he's trying to do. This is my war. Uh, of course, maybe we were all wrong thinking that it would be an external war. He's much more interested in the internal one. But that but war rhetoric, um, that sort of binary mentality of dividing people into those who don't support domination are just jerks. Uh, I think it solidifies his own base Absolutely. The racism appeals to his base. Trump is a racist. Trump, Trump's public persona as a political figure is absolutely based on racism. It's based on his, his first big campaign was, was against the kids who had been wrongly accused of the, the horrific um, Central Park rape. Uh, that was a you know huge public profile for him uh, to, to, for the death penalty to be applied to them. His second big campaign, remember, was the racist campaign, uh, the birther conspiracy that Obama couldn't possibly be American. You know the implication, not particularly subtle, being that of course because he was black. Uh, so tr Trump is a racist, and he he people have voted for him knowing that he's a racist. Uh, and and so undoubtedly the implicit racism of 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 his characterization of the protests will solidify those people who, who, who voted for him. His problem is that it may also animate a lot more um, African-American voters to come out and vote in, in, in November. And I would have thought, I'd be, I mean, Suzanne would have a better sense of this than I would, but I, I would have thought it, 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 it very much risks alienating a sort of middle ground because it has no rhetoric of, of unification. Isn't isn't that exactly it, Suzanne? And it's interesting. I mean, Joe Biden gave what I thought was probably the most impressive speech of his presidential campaign this year uh, so far this week. It, it still wasn't brilliant, but it was certainly better than a lot of what has come before. And it was clearly appealing to that middle ground, which Finton is talking about. You can imagine those suburban middle class women who peeled away from the Republicans in the congressional elections a couple of years ago, sticking with the Democrats on the basis of, of that. And then the other part of it is to animate the base. And in a way, the base is animated by Trump's very existence. But perhaps you look to cement that by having an African-American woman as his running mate. Yeah, I think Trump is taking a gamble here. Um, he is he is rolling the dice and hoping that, as Finton explained, this rhetoric of division, um, of claiming he is the president of law, of law and order, is going to work for him and it's going to win him the election. The problem is that Donald Trump has always ruled as a, as they say, a forty two percent president. He has made no attempt to kind of broaden his support base. Instead, he has spoken only to those that core group that voted for him. I'm in no doubt that that core group um, of Republicans who voted for Donald Trump are still going to support him. His problem now, though, is that he is really, really alienating um, huge portions of, of society. And, the, and those two ang 
those two parts of society, A, the African-American vote, uh, the non-white vote, and B, um, the moderate suburban voters, most of them women. For example, we'll take a couple of, of cities. I was in Atlanta, say Dallas um, or Houston or Detroit. Those cities, the suburbs around those cities where there are thousands and thousands of people. That was traditionally Republican ground, moderate Republicans. I know some people here, you know, women in their 40s, whose who's, uh, instinct would to vote Republican in a kind of economic way, you know, low taxes. These are the kind of people who are turning in droves against Donald Trump. They do not like what they see from him. Um, and I think Republicans are now worried that the damage he is doing to the brand, yes, it's go- of Republicanism. Yes, he's going to motivate his va- base. They're going to turn out. But I think lots of, of people in this country um, are going to vote for Biden. Um, now, then it comes down to maths, the Electoral College. You won't get into all that now. I mean, he Donald Trump got lucky last time around. He won some of these key st- uh, sweet, uh, swing states, some by a tiny uh, margin. Michigan is a state of 10 million people. He won it by 10,000 votes. There was a massive anti-Hillary Clinton uh, issue, I think, in the last election as well. So when you look at those figures, it's not looking good for Donald Trump. As for at the moment, I mean, things can change and I, I don't want to really get into the, the business prediction. As for Joe Biden, you're absolutely right, Hugh, that the speech was good. This is wh- wh- where Biden excels. Now, there is a caveat here. He's got his own issues around race. Obviously, Kamala Harris attacked him for his previous positions on busing. Um, in the first Democratic debate over about a year ago. And secondly, his comments in the last few weeks where he said, you ain't black to a well-known African-American uh, radio presenter really went down badly. In saying that, though, we all know the, the problems with Joe Biden's candidacy, but where he excels is this idea of I'm the figure of unity, I've got compassion, I've got empathy, and also thrown in, I've got experience, I know where the light switches are in the White House, as somebody said to me. People want that at the moment, I think. They just want someone who can steady the ship. So these kind of societal divisions, I think, play to Joe Biden's strengths. Um, look, He's still got a lot of issues and anything could happen in the next five months. He really is prone to gaffes, for example. Um, but his people, I think, are purposely keeping him away from the limelight and it's worked out for him now. He was able to give this big set piece speech in Philadelphia, which incidentally is near Delaware, where he's been living, his home. He was able to go out, do that. And in Philadelphia, a city with its, a huge African-American population. Um, and again, in a swing state, Pennsylvania, where, I mean, I think the Republicans are very worried about winning that state. They, they did very badly in the midterm elections. So, yeah, I think this is going to play to Joe Biden's strengths. Um, and I think Republicans are going to be quite worried about how this ultimately plays in the polls in November. Fintan, I wonder, uh, uh, listening to the podcast sent me, uh, Paul Krugman, the New York Times economist, um, sends a newsletter out every day. And he was writing about how... Uh, it's a cliche to say it, but it still doesn't make it untrue. The the original defining sin of of America and the United States is race, slavery, Jim Crow, racism. It actually goes to explain a lot of the huge problems around things like violence, vast prison populations, the absence of a health service. One of the reasons why that wasn't instituted was because of a fear of of mingling of the races. All all those kinds of things and. All those forces have tended usually to benefit um, the the right when it plays on the, the fears which which they arouse. Is it possible maybe that this time, the, what Suzanne describes, that the sheer chaos and misrule of Trump and Trumpism might end up benefiting the Democrats in this case? I, I, I have a feeling it will. Um, you see, Trump's problem is that he's very, very good at animating his own base, but he doesn't need to animate his own base. <laughs> you know, he has the most loyal, solid, unchanging, unshifting 
political base that, that we've seen anywhere in the modern world, right? Uh, you know, he famously said that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't make any difference. And I think that's actually literally true. I think he could, you know, particularly if it was a black person, it'd be great, you know, uh, or a liberal, you know. <laughs> I mean, so his, his base is, is, is bought into the Trump brand. And it's very like Brexit, you know, people have voted for it and they don't want to be made to feel that they were stupid or that they were wrong. They get pleasure from the fact that other people hate them for what they've done. It's this kind of feedback loop that they're in and they're not going to change. So Trump's, Trump's problem is that his great instinct is at feeding red meat to that base. But, they, you know, they're up to their neck in red meat. They don't really need any more. Um, the larger story that Trump was telling right, was American carnage. That's, you know, his, his phrase. And the paradox, of course, is that he's managed to create the very thing that he evoked. There was no American carnage. You know, he's created it. Any objective persons, you know, or anybody who's not sort of completely fired up as part of Trump's base can just look at their country and realize that it has a catastrophic record in terms of the coronavirus plague. Um, which is 90% down to Trump. Um, I, I think objective estimates suggest that at least 60 to 70,000 people have died unnecessarily because of, because of Trump's uh, failures of policy and management. Uh, you have now, of course, the economic chaos that's, that's going to, well, is already unfolding and is going to continue. And now on top of this, you have these images of, of disorder, of chaos. And even the sort of law and order thing is double-edged, isn't it? Right? So, so to say I'm the law and order president, well, it's great if you're in opposition. right? So what Nixon could do in 68, for example, was he wasn't in power. right? So he can say, if I were in power, you know, these, these anarchists wouldn't be getting away with it. Trump's been in power, he will have been in power, you know, for, 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 for nearly four years by the time the November election comes around. So I think the carnage thing begins to work against Trump. So, so the very powerful thing. And just say, well, have you made America great again? Does, does, does this look great to anybody at any level? Um, you know, w w where are the successes? Where, where's the great story of, of American renaissance? Um, so I, I, I do agree with Suzanne in the sense that I, I think this plays well for, for Biden. Biden is still a very, very problematic and weak candidate. Uh, the saving grace for the Democrats is that the Democratic candidate is Donald Trump. And, and I think everything that's happening is, is likely to feed into the key thing, which is turnout. Turnout's always been the issue, you know, and, 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 if people who are inclined to vote Democratic actually turn out of the ballot box, then the Democrats win. Um, I, I hope the Democrats are sensible enough to, to keep Biden under wraps in a way that coronavirus has been very good because it's kept him isolated. The, the less, you know, it, Biden just needs to be doing set pieces which are very controlled, very direct, very simple, and, and let Trump be Trump. Let, let, let Trump be... The candidate, I mean, Biden's 
power is that he's not Trump. And, and if they stick with that, if he gets a good vice presidential candidate who is presumably going to be an African-American woman and there are some outstanding women that he could choose from, uh, then you have to think the odds favor him. But as Trump slips, as, as he panics, it's, it's going to get nastier and nastier and nastier. Finally, Suzanne, I imagine the entire Washington press corps are absolutely terrified of making any predictions given the way that American politics has gone over the last three or four years. So how do you think it's all going to go? Oh, no, I hate this question, Hugh. Um, I'm going to say it, though. Uh, I, think it, I think Biden's going to win in November. Um, for some of the reasons I just explained, I think the I think Trump got lucky the last time he won a series of swing states. Um, I think the Hillary Clinton Hillary Clinton candidacy was a disaster for Democrats. She's very unpopular in this country. That is a reality among a lot of people. Um, and uh, I think this is the main point that we are now in a world where Donald Trump has been in charge for nearly four years. People voted the last time not knowing, not expecting Donald Trump to be in power. Now he is in power, and a lot of Democrats were complacent last time around. So they will vote. It's a cliche, they will vote for anyone who put the Democrats put up, I think. Um, so really, you know, the, the bar has been lowered phenomenally in American politics following the election of Donald Trump. So I think Joe Biden at the moment, particularly if he, if he picks an African-American woman like a Kamala Harris, um, I think he's, he's going to win. There will be difficulties for Democrats in some states. I think Florida is very difficult. It's a hugely important state with a lot of electoral college votes. Um, Re- Republicans could do very well there. Um, you know, but, but states like Michigan and um, Pennsylvania, I think they'll go Democrat. Um, I can't believe I'm making all these predictions now. I should probably <laughs> stop you before I go into every state and you'll be playing this back in a few months. But look, I, I do. I think Democrats are in a good place at the moment. And just to pick up finally on what, what Finton there said, turnout is key. And this has got racial uh, aspects to it too. One of the big issues here is the underrepresentation of African Americans on the on the voter register. Instances of gerrymandering around this country that have gone right up to the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, down in Georgia again, where I've been for the last few days, huge work being done on that. Stacey Abrams, who's been named as a possible running mate for Joe Biden, this is her life work. She is trying to increase um, voter access for African-Americans. The Republicans are petrified about this. This is why you had Donald Trump going on again and again about postal voting and claiming erroneously that this would lead to fraud. They're terrified that the more people who get on the election register, the more people who vote by mail will vote for Democrats. So I think both parties are aware of what's to play for here when it comes to the issue of voter representation, the electoral register and how many people actually get out and vote on November 3rd. All right, we shall leave it there. Thanks very much to Suzanne and to Finton. Also uh, to Sale and to Circa for joining us earlier. Thanks also to our producer Declan Conlon and if you would like to support this podcast and indeed the Irish Times, all you have to do is go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And if you want to get in touch with us, we'd be really delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. Until the next time though, thanks very much indeed for listening. 